1: Welcome to China Corner Office, a podcast produced in partnership with SubChina, featuring conversations with business leaders from around the world about the challenges and opportunities of doing business in China, the world's most dynamic economy. I'm Chris Markowitz, a professor of business at Cornell, where I teach and research on this same topic. Every episode, we talk to an executive at a company doing business in China and explore what has led to their personal and business success and also some of the challenges they've encountered along the way. With geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China on the rise, understanding how business can compete in China is more important now than ever. If you're interested in doing business in China or are looking for insights to adjust your current business strategy, this is the show for you. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we're talking to Don St. Pierre, co-owner and executive chairman of Vinfolio, an online fine wine marketplace and storage company. Don has extensive experience in the development of the wine industry in China. In 1996, he co-founded ASC Fine Wines, which he built into China's leading importer of premium and fine wine. He sold the company in 2010 to Suntory. At the time, ASC had 1,200 staff in over 26 offices and 100 exclusive importing relationships with elite international wineries. After the sale, Don continued working at the company until 2015, when he began his time at Vinfolio. Don is the recipient of numerous wine industry accolades, including being named number 7 on Decanter Magazine's Top 50 Global Wine Industry Power Players and being selected by Wine Enthusiast Magazine as the 2011 International Man of the Year. In 2012, Don was knighted by the French government for his contributions to the wine industry. Right, So, uh, Don, welcome to China Corner Office. Thanks, Chris.
0: Good to be here.
1: Great. So, uh, first question I have, just I'm really interested to learn more about Vinfolio. Can you describe uh, the business model and, in particular, any intersections it has with China?
0: Well, when I sold ASC to Suntory, uh, I stayed involved uh, for a number of years and then left and moved to San Francisco in 2015. And really, I wanted to get to know the U.S. wine industry uh, and eventually find a platform with which to disrupt how distribution was done Um, sounds like a lofty goal but i was hearing from a lot of the producers particularly in europe of how challenging the distribution platforms were in the united states to navigate and to really access the end consumer Um, so i started to look at business models and vinfolio jumped out at me as one that um had a lot of interest in it was a direct to consumer uh, business platform that was uh, a marketplace uh, essentially a 360 degree solution for people that love gray wine. So you could store wine, you could buy wine, you could sell wine through the marketplaces. It had a cloud based software that helped people manage their collections and uh, really checked a lot of the boxes uh, for me in terms of my interest of getting closer to the consumer. My China experience taught me that, you know, you either had to own the product or you had to own the consumer. And being in the middle, as we were in China, was going to become increasingly challenging being an importer that would then sell to a wholesaler that would sell to a retailer. So the closer our business model can be to the consumer and then use that platform to connect both the consumer to the producer, I felt would be would be an interesting path. And, uh, you know, there, there was in the U.S., Post-prohibition, There was a system set up called the three-tier distribution system, which really increasingly didn't work well for segments of wine producers uh, on the high end that produce small quantities of, of high-priced wines. Uh, so that, that was really the, the idea behind my interest in Vinfolio. And in 2016, uh, a great friend of mine, uh, who's now my business partner, Alan Warburg, and I decided to invest uh, in Vinfolio. In March, uh, bought 33% of the business and then uh, uh, later increased that to to majority, I think we're at about 64% now.
1: Great. And so uh, globally, uh, how do your consumers break down? I know it's a global business, and I think some of your storage is even outside the U.S., maybe in the U.K.
0: Yeah, so about uh, 85% of our customers are are U.S.-based. We have clients in Europe. We have clients in Asia, particularly in Hong Kong and mainland China. Uh, And our main storage facility is based in Napa, uh, but we have a facility partnership in Hong Kong, where we store wine for our clients and then also in the uk um, and uh, you know ultimately what we've what we've created is a is a marketplace where people can do kind of everything that they want within the the sector of fine wine uh, and storage is an, is an important part of that
1: right how, how does that relate to tax issues i can imagine if you're like in mainland china where i know you know when i have bought wine in china it's much more expensive i think because of the tax does this sort of storing things in hong kong does that help chinese consumers avoid some tax or
0: i think traditionally uh, hong kong has been a, a place where the mainland chinese uh, have purchased more expensive wines and held them there um you know i think hong kong likes to say that it is the uh, the global capital of the fine wine world um i would say that uh, That is is becoming less true these days because China is is clamping down on smuggling of wines into China from Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong has zero tax, zero duty. China has anywhere from, you know, 40 percent to 100 percent or even higher uh, all in tax uh, to bring the wines into China. So certainly people would prefer not to pay those taxes, keep their wines in Hong Kong and uh, figure out, you know, what to do when they want to drink them later.
1: Got it. So, so Hong Kong, I didn't realize Hong Kong was called the global center of the fine wine world. Is that because of, of its Chinese consumers that are holding their wines there? Yeah,
0: I believe so. I mean, I think if you look at the value of exports into Hong Kong, um, it's unreasonable to assume that all those wines are being consumed by uh, Hong Kong residents or even mainland Chinese residents uh, living in Hong Kong. So there's a there's a lot of wine that goes to Hong Kong that finds its way into China. Um, I would say probably the same for Macau.
1: Got it. That makes uh, that makes sense. Uh, Would love to, yeah, sort of back up a little bit, actually, and talk about your experience in in the China wine business. And I know, you know, 1996, you started ASC. Can you just say a little bit about your inspiration for starting ASC and sort of what insight you had uh, to get that started?
0: You know, I think it really started with my father who moved to Beijing in 1985 to head up a joint venture called Beijing Jeep. And during the summers, I would, I would go and visit him, 85, 86, 87, uh, and really developed a, uh, an interest, a passion for China, uh, studied Chinese in Taiwan uh, during that period as well. And always saw myself getting back to China uh, to do business, whatever type of business that that would be. In addition, my father and I were and are very, very close. Uh, Really kind of grew up as best friends, more best friends than traditional father and son type of uh, arrangement, I guess. And I always wanted to do business with him. So, and he felt the same way. So 1996 really gave us an opportunity to pool our resources and uh, start a business in China together we wanted to import something. Uh, we weren't really knowledgeable about the wine industry, but the general thought was that Chinese consumers would become more and more interested in imported goods as wealth increased, and we wanted to find something that not a lot of other people were doing uh, that we felt would have a, a good uh, trajectory. I think part of the interest in wine also is driven by what the government was doing in China. Uh, They were planting or promoting the idea of planting grapes uh, for a number of different reasons. But one was to try and wean government officials off of uh, Baijiu and get them to consume a a more healthy uh, alcoholic beverage. And also, you know, the the raw materials used in Baijiu were really needed to feed people. And that's a a much higher priority. So uh, I think part of the... Part of the increase in demand we saw happening in the future was driven by by government and their change in policy towards a favorable, uh, towards being favorable to the wine industry. And so, we, we, you know, we looked at other products. We looked at baby care. Uh, we looked at publishing books, importing books, which uh, really probably wasn't a good idea. Glad we didn't do that. Um, but we settled on wine, and. Uh, Part of the other reason we settled on wine was through my father's relationships in the automobile industry, there were a few families that also owned wineries. And that um, kind of allowed us to start uh, because the model was all about uh, representing families uh, producing wine and being their importer, distributor and marketer in China.
1: Got it. What's your sense of like? Did you see the the government's focus on growing the middle class? I mean, it seems that the middle class is, in addition to the government, is a real important sort of set of consumers. Is that also a part of your your business plan? I think yeah. I mean, it's
0: it's yes, the middle class was was part of the business plan. But I think, like all entrepreneurs, or at least in my case, um, you know, the plan that you initially create. Um, as hard or as much effort you put into it, it's still uh, just a plan. And, you know, a lot changes on the path uh, to success or, or failure. <laughs> and so, I, you know, part of our idea was, yes, the middle class would grow. Frankly, we really didn't see the government as being a channel that would be important for purchasing wine. It later became an enormously important channel. We, we didn't see that. Well, we also didn't see the, the dramatic increase in wealth uh that occurred in China and frankly that was really probably the most important driver of domestic demand was uh was the wealthy or the wealthy Chinese and and the impact they had on development of Chinese restaurants uh uh throughout the country and and higher end grocery stores channels that were more compatible with imported wine that was that was just more expensive
1: that makes sense i'm curious uh I'm, part of that must have been sort of educating them as well. I mean, wine is a – I mean, it's different than, I don't know, beer or even baijiu. I mean, it has – you know, there's a huge number of varieties. There's various, you know, by year, different, different tastes. So I'd love to learn a little bit about how you work to try to really, you know, educate the consumers to understand fine wine as a product in and of itself.
0: Education, when I look back on our – our uh, experience in China education was top two, maybe top three most important elements of our success. Um, initially, we didn't understand how little uh, the trade, the hotels, the the restaurants, how few restaurants there were, but just people working in the trade, we didn't understand how little they knew about wine. and as we started to understand this, we realized that you know these were the gatekeepers that were going to um, provide the enthusiasm and the and the and the confidence to the end consumer to purchase this bottle of imported wine. So we really needed to educate uh, those folks to help us sell our wine. We couldn't do it on our own, obviously. So early on, we decided let's create. Uh, uh, first of all, let's focus on making sure our teams really understood the product well. And it was through them that we started the process of of educating our customers. And. That really became an incredibly important part of our success because ultimately it allowed the brand ASC to become trusted. Our focus on education gave consumers in the trade and eventually even end consumers confidence in that ASC represented good quality, um, the provenance of the wines were, were good, and people could trust it. So... Uh, our focus on education really helped build our brand, and our brand became, one, synonymous with trust, which then gave consumers confidence to purchase wines that they had never heard of, provided they were imported by ASC and had an ASC
1: back label. So you had to put a label on the back that that describes the importing of the wine? Can you say a little bit about that? Is it-
0: yeah, you know, initially, uh, when we started the business, we didn't really understand um, the labeling requirements. And... I think we got a shock uh, in the first year or so when we were told that actually the the front label of any bottle of wine imported to China uh, needed to have Chinese characters and explanations in Chinese about everything that the English words said on that front label. So we were initially told that we had to go back to all of our producers and say they have to change all their front labels to incorporate uh, Chinese explanations as to you know grape variety and origin and alcohol content. And you know, of course, that wasn't going to work. Uh, no producers were going to agree to change their front labels, especially the producers we were working with. So eventually what happened is um, Chinese customs agreed to interpret front label as the back label. So... You know, we, we ended up getting uh, the government, and, and it wasn't just us, but other importers ended up getting the government to agree to the idea that the back label that we put on the bottle was essentially the front label to the Chinese consumer. And that back label had to have quite a lot of information and had our, our brand, and we were allowed to talk about who we were as a company. And that became a very important part of our brand and our success.
1: So, so what kind of distinctive things would you communicate on that?
0: So you would have to talk about uh, alcohol content. Of course, you would have to talk about origin. You would have to talk about grape varietal blend. You would have to talk about bottling date, um, and uh, actually more information than what is typically required of any wine producing region. Uh, you would have to incorporate into the back of the into the into the back label. We also wanted to put information about why this winery uh, is well known. So we added information to help consumers understand perhaps more than what uh, the producing, uh, the the winery thought they should explain.
1: I'm curious, you know, we talked a a second ago about the Hong Kong connection. You know, were there people I could imagine that would they would Bring the same wine through Hong Kong and then do a counterfeit label. And I mean, if the if they you know import duties are, you said in some cases hundred percent. I mean, that seems like a, a way to actually get around some of the system and make make a quick buck.
0: Yeah, no, no, that happened. Uh, that happened a lot. You know, we our business model was was really about uh, importing products that we were given exclusivity for. Uh, so importing uh, wineries, their labels. Uh, that only we, by contract, were allowed to import to the to China, but um, this did not stop the parallel uh, players that were based uh, in Hong Kong or Macau or even China from sourcing the wines from other countries like Malaysia or Indonesia or Thailand and then bringing them into China. And oftentimes they would not pay the the proper tax, and we would have to compete against. Uh, folks bringing wine in, the same wine, uh, at much lower prices. So uh, the the whole idea of what ASC stood for and the trust behind the company and what education meant in support of that trust allowed us to survive that type of competition uh, when essentially you had wine that was brought into the country that you know was the same wine, but the cost structure was different so they could sell it at a much cheaper price than we could. But because they didn't have our back label, uh, the consumer wasn't confident in, in how it was imported and who imported it. Um, you know, our, our business uh, was, was, uh, was, you know, survived and thrived despite this crazy type of competition we faced.
1: A lot of your consumers are like, you know, sort of high-end restaurants, hotels, etc. I'm curious, the folks that you had selling to those, you know, given that wine was such a new commodity in China, how did you find like the right people to represent your company?
0: Yeah, that was our biggest uh, our biggest problem was uh, HR uh, hiring people, uh, particularly as we started to grow and, and we needed to hire more people. You know, where could we go to find uh, professionals that both understood this unique product um, and understood uh, the consumer uh, and the environment that we were in? And so we really created a, I guess, a hybrid model of hiring where we hired. Some foreigners that understood the product very well, uh, that were living in China uh, and had an interest and passion in China uh, and could speak to the foreign food and beverage directors, the foreigners that were working in the, in the five-star hotels and, and four-star hotels that we were selling to or that were running the buying at Carrefour or Metro. So they played an important role in, in our success, particularly in the early stage. And then slowly we would be hiring more and more local Chinese that, that also increasingly understood the product well, but clearly understood the operating environment much better than any foreigner would. And as the, as the economy and the environment matured and we started to see more and more Chinese restaurants become important customers, then these foreigners that really didn't understand China became less important and local Chinese became more important. I think the, the area where we hired the most from were the five-star hotels. So we would hire um, you know, young men and women. Uh, I think more women work for us than men in ASC. Uh, and uh, they were educated uh, in a way where they you know understood uh, a bit about the product. We, we provided a lot more education around the product but their English levels were, were very good, uh, and you know they could pronounce the name of the wines and 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 interact not only with uh, the foreigners that were doing the buying, but more importantly with uh, the local teams that were oftentimes much more important than the foreigners in these hotels or restaurant groups or, or retail chains. Yeah. Uh,
1: how many cities were you in eventually?
0: So eventually, we got to 20, 26 cities, including. Uh, hong kong and macau uh, we opened up in macau in 2006 and i think hong kong in 2008 uh, but the vast majority of our business were was in mainland china our first office was beijing um second office actually i think was guangzhou third office was shanghai and uh and those three regions really became uh, the, the regional headquarters for our business. And then later, we, we had Chengdu as a, as a West, uh, West-based headquarter.
1: Makes sense. Uh, I'd like to discuss a little bit more about the government Aspect of this and and government relations. So you mentioned that you know early on the government was trying to plant grapes to wean people away from from Baijiu, Uh, and you know I know that there's been a domestic wine industry that has grown quite a bit in China. I've been to some banquets where you know people want to drink red wine. They think maybe because I'm a Westerner, I guess they you know red wine, but it has to be Chinese wine because. Of sort of patriotism, I guess. Can you say anything about how you would compete against the Chinese wine, uh, as far as you know the, the different types of uh, producers you bring in? Yeah, I mean,
0: I, I think really it was about quality. So, you know, we really focused on uh, on telling the story of these wineries uh, and the history of these wineries brought uh, with them. And the quality that they represented reinforced by the international recognition that uh, people like Robert Parker or Wine Spectator uh, provided. And so, you know, I I think most Chinese consumers believe that imported wine was better quality than local wine. But to your point, uh, a lot of the consumption was, was directed towards local wines uh, because partly because government played an important role and they had to drink local wine. Um, and then also patriotism, as you mentioned, but also price. So, you know, the, the price of local wine just tended to be much lower than imported wine, uh, particularly prior to China joining WTO in 2005, because, you know, imported taxes on, on all uh, wines produced outside of China were in excess of 100%. Uh, so it, it made even the least expensive wines very expensive in China. And then as China entered WTO, those tariffs started to come down. And, you know, now if we look where, where China's at, there's free trade agreements uh, with Chile and Australia, for example, where the, where the tariff on wine is, is nothing or almost nothing. You know, you have to include VAT and, um, and consumption tax. So now you're looking at a situation where domestic wine, is actually more expensive than imported wine. And that, that, and I'm talking about sort of general varietal wines, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Chardonnay, produced in countries like Chile and Australia. That does not bode well for the domestic wine industry in China um, because I still, I still believe that while domestic wine industry quality is getting better, and there are a number of examples of producers making great wine now, they're very much in the minority. And uh, most of the domestic wine produced in China, uh, quality wise, compared to you know lower price producers in countries like Chile or Australia, um, just don't compete well.
1: So I guess market share in some ways of China. So I mean, obviously, I know, you know, French wine is seen, you know, very favorably. Australian wine, I'm surprised. I mean, Penfolds that, you know, I was not familiar with that brand before actually traveling to China, but that's a big, you know, big. Big big brand in China, uh, you know Chilean wine. I'm not sure which ones are are, are big, but you know I'd lo- love to hear a little bit about you know the foreign wine. I don't think American wine, you know California wine, is not that popular in China. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I think uh, California uh, has struggled in China over the years. Uh, you know, when my father and I started the business, we really tried to focus on California wine. Uh, we represented Behringer, uh, for example, and uh, Chateau Saint-Michel or Saint-Michel Estates uh, from when we started the business. Uh, but it was, a, it was a tough go because American wine tends to be priced for the domestic market. And uh, when you look at its price uh, to quality ratio uh, internationally compared to countries like Argentina or, or Chile or Australia, it's on the high side. So uh, in addition, Chinese consumers really didn't look at America as a culture of food and wine. Uh, I think Chinese consumers love America. There's a lot of great, uh, great things that come from America, but great food culture and great wine culture were not seen by the Chinese as, as one of those uh, you know, cultural elements uh, in America that, that, uh, that was famous in China, uh, whereas France uh, certainly was. So that really gave France a, a big advantage uh, early on because Chinese looked at, at the French culture and they thought wine and food. You know, and, and so naturally, if they were gonna spend money on imported wine, they went towards France and particularly Bordeaux, which was seen as the most important wine growing region in France. Australia later developed, uh, I think, and it's, it's interesting because Australia now is the leading exporter of wine to China, they've overtaken France. And it, it's really an extraordinary accomplishment. And you wonder how it happened. Uh, I think partly it happened because Australia domestic wine and domestic consumption um, is not, you know, it's high, but there's a limited number of people, so they have to export. And so the export market in general is more important to them. They put a huge focus on China from the early beginnings. They invested a lot of money in building the Australian brand. And I think very importantly, a lot of Chinese would, would vacation in Australia or go to school in Australia. And when you went to Australia, you saw people drinking wine everywhere. So there was a culture of wine in Australia that the Chinese, as they started to travel uh, to Australia, became more and more comfortable with. And they brought back that level of comfort to China. And that, combined with the amount of money that Australia was investing in China, along with the price points, which were much more competitive than the United States... Resulted I think in, in the great success they're now having
1: what's your sense of sort of red versus white wine? I never see white wine in China. Uh, I mean occasionally I do but really it's mo- almost all. Yeah re- I, red I, I think, But in the US I see white equally as much as red.
0: I think white wine suffers from two uh, two problems uh, first uh Joe by put Joe Hong Joe uh, you know, if you say Hong Joe in China, Chinese consumers know you're talking about red wine. If you say baijiu in China, Chinese consumers believe you're talking about uh, white spirit, right? And so linguistically, uh, there is a bias against, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but there's a there's a bias against white grape wine because if people are going to say baijiu, they're going to think spirit's not 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 wine. I think the second point is that, you know, white wine needs to typically be served chilled, and I don't think Chinese consumers are are really that enthusiastic about drinking a cold beverage. You know, obviously there's exceptions. Beer beer is a good example. I mean, you know, beer's is one of the largest beer markets in the world. But for wine, uh, serving it chilled uh, just never really was appealing, at least uh, as we were building the business. So to your point, uh, red wine was 90% or maybe 80% uh, by by value, maybe 90% by volume of what we sold. And I think the imports into China and the domestic production kind of mirrored
1: that. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, Great. I'd love to talk a little bit about like one of the, I guess, sort of more sensitive periods of when you were at ASC. Uh, So I know you were actually, you were thrown in jail at some point for some, I don't know if it was a tax issue. I I can't remember the exact uh, details. Would you mind sort of sharing what why you were thrown in jail and then also interested in learning a bit more about your experience there.
0: Yeah. So it was uh, March of 2008 and China Customs came into our offices. I was in France at the time. And, um, you know, we, over the years, we were uh, targeted uh, by competition on a very frequent basis. Uh, So we had become used to you know, the the customs, uh, local uh, government enforcement agency knocking on our doors and and, uh, asking for our files and and indicating we had done something wrong. And, you know, over the years, we had just become, I think, not immune, but quite adept, as many uh, companies had to become at dealing with these types of inquiries. Um, And so initially, we didn't really think it was that different than what had happened in the past. Um, But the difference was in 2008 we had really become the leader in china of importing wine we became the biggest wine importer in china and as some of the large domestic companies became more involved in wine i think the uh the sensitivities of what we were doing and being a leader became greater and you know i look back on that and i think the the mistake we made uh, was really not building strong enough relationships with the government agencies responsible for oversight of our industry. I think, uh, you know, when we started ASC in 96, uh, my father and I made kind of a decision that we didn't want to build a company that was dependent upon government relations. And so we really focused on building a business independent of of that type of, uh, of guanxi. And but in the end, we became, you know, we became the biggest in the sector and we got targeted. And so this particular instance, uh, you know, they accused us of bringing wine in at a, at a lower value than what it actually was. And the value of, of what they accused us was greater than a certain amount, which meant that uh, I would be detained. Uh, they detained two other people in the company. Uh, it was a, you know, it was a really traumatic experience. Um, but like all difficult experiences. If you use it uh, well, you can learn from it and get stronger. And, you know, thankfully, we were able to do that. So I was released on the 29th day and, uh, you know, really set about uh, improving our strategy of, of government uh, agency engagement and uh, hired uh, someone named Zhang Hao, who had previously worked at Bacardi and really became uh, my right hand in, in building up our relationships with the right um, folks and the right agencies, and really building the trust uh, with these agencies. So we were very successful at building trust with the Chinese consumers, but we really didn't focus enough time on building trust with, with government. And so that's you know that's what we did, and um, and we did a great job of it. You know, I remember a couple of years after that, we were the first uh, company in, in the Shanghai Free Trade Zone to be awarded a AAA. Uh, first wine company awarded a A rating which allowed us to import wine and pay tax afterwards right? but it was it was an experience that obviously I'll never forget um, I think the takeaways for foreigners operating in China uh, at least would, for me would be you know oftentimes you're forced to operate in a gray area and uh, the, the agencies that are responsible for interpreting what is uh, what is black and what is white or what is legal and non-legal, um, you know you often have to rely upon your relationships with them. And you know many foreigners have some relationships but not as strong as what domestic uh, uh, businessmen have. And so when things change and perhaps someone new comes in who's responsible for uh, regulating your, your particular industry, um, you have to be very careful because they may interpret it differently. And when they do, you know, you're left in a very difficult situation because you've been doing something you thought was legal and now someone's saying, no, 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 it's, it's not. And being a foreigner, particularly uh, like my father and I, who didn't, you know, we, we intentionally didn't have local partners uh, with, you know, a family type of business model, um, you know, we were vulnerable. And so I think, you know, when you're working in a large uh, multinational corporation, it's, it's perhaps less of an issue. But when you're a foreign entrepreneur in China and you are engaged in competition with, with local entrepreneurs, I think it's becoming increasingly uh, dangerous. Now, maybe dangerous is the wrong word, but, you know, you, you really have to become, you, ha- you have to be very aware of how quickly the environment is changing and the relationships you have Uh, to prevent something bad from happening.
1: You mentioned that, you know, in some ways, the line changes with new personnel. Did that evolve over the time you would think it might become more clear as to what the where the line is? Or is that something that throughout most of your time there was really dependent on who was in the role at the agency?
0: I think it did become clear, uh more and more clear, particularly in a city like Shanghai, uh where, you know, the the laws were much more black and white uh as uh the business and the years uh the years moved on. But in other areas like uh Shenyang or, or Chongqing or Guangzhou, it wasn't. Uh so you know, we were operating in all these areas. So even though where your headquarters is in Shanghai, things might be coming much more uh, easy to understand, and you can develop a level of comfort. Uh, in other cities where you're operating, they don't. And so, you know, for this reason, a lot of um, foreign businesses, particularly in the spirits business, uh, did not operate uh, like we did. Um, they worked as an importer, but then sold to wholesalers and let the wholesalers really manage the entire business uh, with some help. Uh, our model wasn't like that. We were managing the business Uh, Through our own team, we had almost fourteen hundred people at one point working for us throughout China. So, you know, by managing all aspects of the business, uh, it creates greater uh, greater risk.
1: How about your twenty nine days or twenty eight days in detention? Can you say a little bit about what those day to day experience, what it was like on a day to day basis? Yeah, I can. I can laugh at
0: it now, but it was not a it was not a good experience. I, you know, I was taken to a detention center in Shanghai. That was the most secure, uh, which which means that's where they take the foreigners uh, who have been accused of of crimes, um, business, uh, you know, civil crimes, uh, um, or any type of crime. But it's also where they take the worst local Chinese offenders. So you are put into a a small room uh, with no beds. You sleep on the floor with anywhere from an additional four to say six people and uh, you're just not let out of the room and it's a it's a difficult situation because uh, you know you're just not sure when you're going to get out and that's probably the hardest part uh, is not knowing because the the people you can interact with your lawyer really can't tell you a whole lot so you know I wouldn't wish it upon anyone I look back I look back on it now and and you know, I, I think it was a great uh, learning experience and, and it really helped change our business model, it helped me realize we need to change the business model a bit. And that, you know, really gave us an opportunity to build much greater value as we started to become much more adept at dealing with government. And eventually, uh, you know, if we hadn't have done that, when it came time to sell, uh, the value of our business would have been much less. Uh, but because we went through this experience, and we changed how we were interacting uh, with different government agencies. What we created uh, became of much greater value. Yeah, it makes sense.
1: Uh, how about uh, how about the anti-corruption campaign? I mean, that was sort of I think maybe you know after you had sold the business, but you know, I know you were still involved in running it. So, what's your sense of the you know effect that's had on I guess both I mean the spirits market, but then also more broadly. You know, luxury consumption and 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 doing business in China. Yeah, I think it
0: it had an enormous negative impact on uh, on imported wine, imported spirits, um, particularly those products which were dependent upon government entertainment-related channels, so KTVs, uh, high-end restaurants, nightclubs. You know, a lot of that business was back then geared towards government entertainment. So, as uh, as leadership started to crack down, you started to see demand fall quite dramatically, and uh, you know that had a, that that was uh, that had a big negative impact. And I think, you know, now we're, what we've seen come from it are are I think good things because prior to the crackdown. So much of what wine was being sold in China was sold for entertainment purposes. So you could argue that the consumption was sort of a false consumption. It wasn't consumers drinking wine because they loved it. It were business people purchasing wine to drink with government officials to show their respect. And so as that started to decline, as we started to see a decline in demand in that channel, We started to see consumers become more interested in drinking wine for their own uh, pleasure. We started to see home consumption increase, uh, not not by huge amounts, but somewhat. But more importantly, we started to see people purchase wine uh, because it was for themselves, which brought price points down, but really started to create, you started to reveal the real market. And once you started to see what the real market is, then you could build a strategy around that and and it would slowly start to grow and and i think that's what's happened i you know i think covid has uh, obviously created a bump in the road uh but i think for the long term china is in a much stronger place than what it was prior to the uh to the crackdown in 2011 2012 because you understand what real consumption is much more today than what you did before
1: Uh, you you mentioned covid and i um I mean, it's interesting. One, I, in the U.S., I think I've read that actually alcohol consumption has gone up uh, since COVID. People sort of ordering in, and, and you know, they're sitting around their house all day, just you know, having some wine or or, or something else. Uh, so I'm curious, you know, how, how you think the the market in China, you know, has has evolved via COVID. Uh, and then, secondly, I know you were in China during SARS, and any reflections based on your experience in SARS um, with COVID? Yeah, I think.
0: I think first with, with COVID, from what I understand, you know, the market was, was hit very, very hard in January, February, March, but is recovering uh, and recovering quickly. I think the on-premise uh, is the area, the on-premise, the restaurant trade is the area that's still, you know, really suffering. I think the off-premise, which is the big retail, uh, retail stores and uh, e-commerce are, are growing uh, quite, quite well. But the on-premise, depending on your brand and the, the nature of your product, if you are very focused on the on-premise, then you're still dealing with uh, uh, a significant uh, uh, lag in demand versus where it where was uh, last year at this time, I think. In terms of uh, the, well, the U.S., yeah, I mean, you read all these, all these stories about how demand has gone through the roof for alcohol. Um, I think from what I understand by volume, uh, it's actually grown a bit by value it's it's come down um, and again i think it's it, it's not it's not all good or all bad for everyone you know it's there are some products that are lower price points that are doing very well and some products at higher price points that were dependent upon high end restaurants that are not doing very well so for us in our business at vinfolio we've seen more and more customers come to our site to purchase fine wine Uh, We're benefiting. We're seeing a lot more clients uh, be open to the idea of using our platform. Uh, So we're, you know, that gives us a lot of, uh, a lot of hope for the future. And we're also seeing a lot more supply come available to our platform, uh, which, which uh, is another very positive uh, change. In terms of SARS, I think the thing that stands out to me the most is the impact SARS had uh, on e-commerce in China. You know, 2003, if you look at Alibaba and where their platform was, it was very early days. I mean, very little business, particularly of, of imported products being sold. And with SARS, you started to see a, a change, pretty dramatic change, where it was really the birth or the beginning of Tmall um, or of Alibaba's uh, marketplace uh E commerce business. And so it was a, it was an ignition, uh, this burning platform that created a change, a more rapid change in consumer behavior. And if I look at where COVID is today, given the fact that it's so much more severe, it's lasted so much longer, you know, there are certainly going to be big changes that come of this, uh, which would have taken much longer. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're reading about these things every day. So, you know, I look back on SARS. I think we ended up growing that year by 28 uh, percent, despite the fact that we had three months or maybe it was four months of, of pretty dramatic interruption. But, you know, we came out of it stronger than when we went in. Uh, the competitors that we had at the time that were, were not as strong came out weak, weaker. So, you know, in the end, I think it, it, it was a good thing for ASC and i think it really gave rise to to e-commerce in china which has become is becoming more and more important
1: and i'm sure for vinfolio it must have the same sort of effect i mean i'm not sure where fine wine is bought but my perception would be that actually the people that are buying fine wine usually have like i don't know a wine merchant that they sort of know in their you know i don't know new york or or wherever they live and in that deep relationship you know person to person individual uh, is where they get their wine, whereas now perhaps maybe they're more likely to go online. Is that true, or, or you know, I'm curious what you're finding. Um... Well, I think uh,
0: I y- yes. I mean, we're certainly seeing an increase in in number of customers come to our our e-commerce site and purchase and sell uh, in our marketplaces. So that's that's happening, and I think you know the. I alluded to this before, uh, we're seeing more and more supply come available. So what, what is perhaps more important in our business is access to supply. So, so we're selling a product that inherently is produced in quantities that are lower than demand. So the more we can source of the product at the right cost, the more we can sell. And so if our platform is perceived as being a more viable platform for producers to access the end consumer, we're going to get more supply. And, and that bodes very well for us. So, and that's what's happening now. We're, we're getting more producers, more importers wanting to work with us because uh, producers want to get closer to the consumer. And the inherent inefficiencies of the U.S. three-tier system, which again was set up post-prohibition, are, are being exposed more and more these days because of covid you know, So if producers were unhappy with a three-tier system and the fact that you had to sell to an importer that sold to a wholesaler that sold to a retailer that sold to an end consumer, if you had to go through those four steps to access the end consumer and you were frustrated with that, well, you're even more frustrated today and you want change uh, and you're looking for partners that can get you closer to the end consumer and consumers perhaps are also looking to be closer to the producer. And and Vinfolio provides that opportunity both for the producer and the consumer.
1: Where are most of the wines you sell from? Is it it Europe, US, California, uh, other regions?
0: Uh, More than 50% of what we sell is French. Uh, So Bordeaux is the most important uh, region, which is interesting, same in China when I had ASC. Uh, second, uh, so beyond France, then you look at the United States as being second, and then uh, Italy uh, is being third, and uh, after that, I think it's Spain and, uh, and Australia. I feel like I'm forgetting somewhere, but those are those are the big five. And you know, France has been the dominant uh, uh, source of supply for our platform. I think what we've seen in the last six, seven months, uh, American wines are becoming more popular on Vinfolio than they were before for two reasons. Uh, One, we're seeing more customers come to our site. And, uh, you know, the vast majority of Americans like to drink American wine. Uh, So we're seeing just by nature, we have more customers coming to our site. We're seeing more demand for American wine. Uh, In addition, the Airbus-Boeing dispute Uh, That has been ongoing, and we all read about, or at least I read about, every day. Resulted in an increase in tariffs by the USTR on French wine. So tariffs went from zero to 25 percent, or not zero, but basically nothing to 25 percent in October of 2019. That had that had a big negative impact on on demand because prices had to go up. And so we're, we are dealing with that. That's put some downward pressure on demand for French wine uh, as well. Uh, so I, you know, we're, we're seeing, because of that factor, we're seeing demand increase a bit for uh, California wine and Italian wines, because the Italians somehow escaped the USTR's wrath <laughs> uh, on, on that dispute. Yeah
1: no 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 air uh no air companies uh in in Italy I guess. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh speaking of tariffs, I'm curious what your thoughts are on US China relations and sort of as we move forward, you know, presumably into into a new Biden administration, you know, what your sense of where things might go, you know, the the you know, what will happen with the tariffs, any any insights you have on on the international relations. Well, it seems as if
0: what Biden is likely to do is is become friendly again with the Europeans and develop a a more comprehensive uh, uh, approach with bringing allies, traditional allies, into the fold uh, as it relates to um, managing the trade relationships with China. So uh, I would suspect that we're going to see Uh, a decline in in the um, in the adverse relationship between the US and Europe but we're going to continue to see uh, you know uh, we're going to continue to see the Americans look at China and figure try and figure out ways to rebalance the relationship I, I think Many years ago, and you know, you and your your listeners may know this a lot better than I. But I think there was a general idea that by allowing the Chinese economy to grow quickly, um, perhaps partly because uh, favorable trade uh, relations with the United States favorable towards the Chinese that it would uh, enhance the possibility of uh, democracy coming to China. <laughs> and... Uh, right. the yeah Theories so, are <laughs> Yeah. So that's uh, that's proven not to be correct. Right. Uh, but, you know, I think the other thing we'll have to remember is the trade imbalance. You know, if you factor in goods and services and the amount of business that American companies like Apple and GM are doing in China, uh, you know, the, the trade imbalance uh, looks very different. And so... You know, U.S. businesses have become, uh, China's become a huge market, and it's, it's not just exporting the product from the U.S. to, to China, uh, it's selling in China. And, you know, when we started ASC, that's what we thought was eventually going to happen. We saw Chinese consumers becoming more and more important. So we wanted to import things into China. At that point, most foreigners who were doing business in China wanted to make things in China and export it out. So leveraging the low-cost labor that China represented way back then. You know, the, the, the you know, situation has changed dramatically now, as we all know. And I think most U.S. companies uh, are looking at how do we sell into China? And, you know, I, I think Biden's policy towards trade with China is, should be about protecting U.S. businesses in China, growing their access to Chinese consumers, uh, and, you know, not, not about erecting barriers for China exports to America— but helping America uh, have access to that market, which is going to become more and more and more important in the future.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. You know, I mean, there's clearly obviously a lot of wealth in the growing middle class, but there's still a billion plus people that actually are relatively uh, low income. So so there is a lot of room for growth, I would agree. Oh, yeah, absolutely. just have one or two final questions, sort of related. I'm curious. So you mentioned there were a few Chinese wineries that were doing uh, doing well. You, I mean, I'd love to know some names in case you know I'm ever able to go to China <laughs> again after COVID. I could maybe be on the lookout for those. Uh, and then related to that, just any recommendations, relatively low priced wines that you can get in america for our listeners to you know know what a real wine expert thinks is a good wine i don't know sort of maybe under 30 dollars yeah
0: well i think on the china side uh as i said there's a number of examples of local wineries doing a doing a great job uh one is grace grace vineyards g-r-a-c-e um fantastic winery uh fantastic family behind the winery,
1: and. Uh, I Just, think the we the, went to University of Michigan. I think if I'm not correct, one of the is it a woman? Uh, that Judy, yeah, yeah, Judy, yeah, yeah. Judy is uh, I, um,
0: yeah, fantastic, fantastic leader, uh, wonderful person, good friend. So yeah, I'm a big fan of Grace. Uh, there's a winery uh, outside of, uh, of Beijing, Hebei, called Domaine sino France Winery, uh, and it produces fantastic wine. It's now being run by an ex-colleague of mine uh, named Richard Lee, and, uh, you know, highly recommend it. Uh, there's a number of others. I think the area uh, out, way out west, um, so if you look at what are the regions in China that are producing wine, um, you know, you've, you've, got, you've got Shandong, which is a traditional area, Hebei, a traditional area, and then you got the western part of China. And I you know, I think there's a lot of money going into the western part of China. Um there's a lot of uh, interest uh both amongst foreigners they are investing in the western part of China. Um LVMH has got uh you know a fantastic winery out in, in Shangri-La, um which uh you know which which makes very good wine, very small production. Uh so that's a that's another. And then uh Lafitte Rothschild. Uh, has a has a winery uh, in Shandong uh, area, which is uh, just recently started production, which is producing great wines. Um, so you know, I think Changyu is a winery that's uh, that also in spots uh, makes decent wine. Uh, uh, so I, you know, I would suspect in the years to come, you're going to see more and more smaller family-owned wineries focused on quality. Um, Silver Heights is another. Uh, So I I think, you know, I think the challenge China faces is the really large producers um, oftentimes have to pay uh, vast amounts of money to secure distribution. And they also have to deal with what is high costs of production, because depending on the region in China, you may have to bury the vines, uh, and, and that's a very manual process because the the winter weather is too cold for the vines, so they actually have to be buried by the soil. And so just something like that uh, costs an enormous amount. It's manual. Uh, and so the cost of making wine in China is not inexpensive. The, the cost of selling wine in China is not inexpensive. So these are, are two factors that makes it very hard for uh, Wineries producing large volumes uh, because they've got to be priced higher, and you 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 compare it to the prices of, of imported wine from countries like Chile and Australia, where the taxes have been eliminated due to free trade agreements. And and uh, you know if I'm a Chinese consumer, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy a Chilean wine, not a not Great Wall, for example. In terms of uh, imported wines to the U.S. or wines in general, I mean I I think. Uh, Uh, I'm a I'm a big fan of northern Italian wines uh, wines from Monticello uh, Montecino excuse me uh, Tuscan region uh, Barolo Barbaresco uh, great wines go with food really well Uh, Chile is making great wines at at very competitive price points as Argentina is Uh, South Africa uh, just really really making good wine and uh, they need our help because they're probably uh, they've probably been affected uh, by COVID, more than any other wine-growing region, in a negative way. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of great wines at thirty dollars and below. I think my recommendation would be to find the grape variety that you have an interest in. So, if you like Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, if you like Chardonnay, if you like Merlot, then start to experiment uh, with within that category and and find other regions around the world that produce that and uh, and just you know focus in on on that particular grape variety and really get to know it. And through that, you'll learn about, you know, the differences in different regions around the world.
1: Super, well, that's all the questions I have. Don, thanks so much for joining us on China Corner Office. It's been really an enlightening discussion. All right,
0: Chris, appreciate it.
1: Thanks for joining us on China Corner Office. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Marquis, Kaiser Quall, and Jason McRonald. Did you enjoy the show? Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know your thoughts. And don't forget to subscribe to the feed for alerts when new episodes are published. See you soon.